What did you have for breakfast this morning? I had two eggs fried with sourdough toast. I love sourdough. I have some sourdough bread in my house right now. Yeah, it's a really good local bakery. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit through conversations with extraordinary people. We talk about all aspects of life here, imposter syndrome, breaking free from the script, living with intention, boundaries with family, what it means to be vulnerable, and the fact that we're all really just making this up as we go along. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Amy Heater. She's a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister. She's a yoga instructor and photographer based in Madison, Wisconsin. And in October 2020, you presented a talk at TEDx Madison called The Radical Sabbatical, all about the year-long trip you and your family took from the fall of 2017 to 2018 with the goal of taking a pause in your lives. You sold your house, pulled kids out of school, quit your jobs, and traveled the country in a camper trailer. I'm really curious, what sparked the need for such a radical sabbatical? You know, it was a convergence of mm, several factors. One of them that I talk about in the presentation is my husband was feeling burned out at work, managing an affordable housing nonprofit, and we were outgrowing our home. Um, the four of us shared a 900 square foot home. And also my husband and I had for years um, gone back and forth if we wanted to continue living in an urban setting. Madison's a small city, but we live on what's referred to as the the Isthmus. It's a strip of land between two lakes. And it has a very village feel, so we sort of walk and bike everywhere, but we're in the hub, in the heart of the capital and very close to the university district. So we are country mice and city mice, and we were curious if maybe we wanted to go back to the wildlands to finish raising our kids. And um, his parents were planning to move off of their farm, the farm that my husband grew up on. So it was also an opportunity to check out if we wanted to take over that homestead. Um, it's, a, it's a treasured piece of property in Bayfield, Wisconsin, very close to the shores of Lake Superior. So those factors And quite honestly, the fall of 2016 was a difficult time, Um, depending on your political leanings. They were a difficult time for me. I'm one of those people that found myself shocked um, the morning after the election and disillusioned and um, frankly concerned for the future and what the influence of the next four years would do to my children. Um, And I wanted to give them an experience that was going to um, outshine the 
growing division that they were starting to see even at their very formative ages. At that time, they were, um, at that time in the fall, they were six and 10. Anyway, we chose to take a pause between knowing my husband wanted different work and also knowing we were outgrowing our home and we're looking for a different space. And to honestly live the questions, live the questions we were feeling. You, you mentioned that part of it was evaluating whether or not you wanted to kind of go back to the wildlands. You said back to, was this, were you previously living in nature and then kind of contemplating like going back to a more, I mean, Madison, like you said, is, is definitely urban and like the Midwest has some nature, but I, I get the sense you were looking to see, should we go back to like true nature? Yeah. Um, uh, my husband and I definitely value wilderness and spaces where one is surrounded by more green space than um, development. And it's where we met. We both worked in a national park called Isle Royale National Park. And that experience of living and working in that park was very formative for me in my early twenties and kind of, and very much changed my life um, where I really never saw myself going, <laughs> going back to live in a, in a civilized urban setting because it was, it was a discovery for me personally. I had not been in wilderness before I got that job. I had lived in a kind of a country setting outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan, but it was, it was not wilderness. Um, but I was comfortable with forests and apple orchards and whatnot. He grew up, Bayfield itself is a lot of um, wilderness area. So that's very um, comfortable for him. So anyway, I think we've also wrestled with raising children. Um, it, you know, it, it's very different for their experience of life if they're in an urban setting or if they're in a rural setting. And we've definitely traveled between the two places their whole lives, even before this trip. But I think what we wanted to instill in them was feeling comfortable when you're in those spaces where you're actually not um, top of the food chain, where you're vulnerable, um, and actually just experiencing which seems to unfold if you give enough time, you kind of push past the fear that the wilderness can instill. Which sure, I had, sure. I had so much of that when I found myself setting foot on that island that first year in um, 1998. I, I had never been anywhere like that. And there was a lot of fear to unpack around darkness, around large animals, around not like not having the distractions around just you're being, you're on your own a lot anyway. But if you give it enough time, wonder follows often for people if they give it enough time. And I wanted them to know that I wanted them to taste that experience. So that was actually, that was a huge part of the reason why we chose during that year to base it in visiting many national parks out west. 
What was it about your time at Isle Royale? Is it Isle Royale or Isle Royale? I always get it wrong. You know, it depends on who's talking about it. But anyone who <laughs> so many is things there <laughs> and works up there, it's Isle Royale. Okay. Uh, and and that's, that's the more common pronunciation. But you do hear Isle Royale because um, that's probably how it was pronounced back when it was acquired. Um, oh, okay. It makes sense because yeah. I thought I had heard IRL. So what was it about your time at Isle Royal that changed your life? You mentioned that it was really a turning point for you. Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so many things, but if I could just share a story, I think that this, sure. was, this was a, a moment that was a big shift for me. I was very excited to be there. I was asked to my first sort of job out there was an internship for the cultural resource department as a photographer. And um, my main job was actually documenting various things, but also cataloging many of the archival old photographs from the park and creating fresh prints. There was actually a dark, a dark room <laughs> on the <laughs> Island, which I mean, dates me, but was astounding to me that they actually had a little dark room on this island, which was so exciting. But anyway, so I was very excited about all of that, but this place is rugged. It is rugged. There's no cars. There's no roads. It's an, it's one main island, about 45 miles long, nine miles wide, and then about 200 satellite islands of various sizes. So it's very much a maritime park. You either walk or you boat everywhere. And um, I was stationed on one of those satellite islands from the big island. And this is in the middle of Lake Superior. And if you're not familiar with the Great Lakes, they're basically freshwater seas. And there's um, a lot of wind and waves. And you're at the mercy often of the elements. So things happen according to when the weather is good. Mind you, I'm doing a lot of my archival work, so I didn't have to travel a whole lot. But recreationally, I loved starting to spend time in a kayak, in um, just spending time with the stars. I hadn't seen stars like that before because there's absolutely no light pollution. I'm also a water lover, which drew me out there. But I found myself one night magnetized to the beauty of the place. And I wanted to just spend the night outside in a sleeping bag with no tent on this bare black basalt rock on the shore. And I was compelled to like do that because I'd never slept outside alone before. And I knew there was nothing really to worry about. There are wolves on the island, but they're on the big island and they don't mess with humans. There's moose around, which is a very interesting animal to start to get used to being share company with. But I knew that there were there were no moose at that time on that little satellite island. <laughs> you double they're checked. not going to hurt you, but they're <laughs> giant. Anyway, um, but I found myself curled up on the on this rock, and. It was so dark, and the, the way that the water was lapping up on the raw rock shoreline was so loud. And I found myself, you know, when your mind starts to spin with anxiety, and it starts to perpetuate the fear. And so the, 
the sound of the water was just so unsettling to me. And I, I know there's no scary creatures out there. This is fresh water. <laughs> it, I was still having whatever primal fear that is around being next to water and also just being alone as a human in a place where wildness is prioritized and that who, you know, you can have wild encounters at any moment. Anyway, I'm freaking out. I, I pulled the sleeping bag over my head for a, a long time and I didn't know if I could just stay out there. And I'm like, what am I even doing out here? <laughs> this place, I love it, but I'm so freaked out. And um, at one point I just like peeked my eyes, just my eyes. And the stars just struck me like a lightning bolt. In that moment, I was blown away by the beauty that I was seeing, and it started to overshadow the fear. And I started just allowing that, that beauty to fill my mind. And I was mesmerized, and I slowly just took down the whole sleeping bag from my head, and my breathing started to change, and I felt like I never felt like I belonged in the wild or that I had a place there. I felt like an imposter. And in that moment, as I was breathing and just taking in that beauty, I realized that I was a part of that place and experience in that moment, and that was okay. And that that was a feeling I wanted to continue to um to explore. So that place is so profound for me because that was one moment of pushing back some pretty strong fear and just um, trusting and, and knowing that I belonged and was a part of the place for that time period. And then it just, it just taught me so many things, like how strong I could be, taught me how to read weather so that I knew when it was safe to do crossings. I felt like I was tapping into a lot of old knowledge people used to have to have just to operate. Um, uh, because, yeah, there's many moments. You're dropped off and they're like, we'll pick you up in 10 days and you've got all your food. And, you know, you have to learn how to, how to navigate and be safe. Sounds like you had many opportunities to sort of find strength within yourself, whether you were seeking it or not, or whether you realized it was there or not. Yeah, it was powerful. And I, I don't know, I think maybe as a woman, that was huge. It's like, you don't, it's not as common to find women in wilderness spaces. And we're not as like, I think that's changed a lot since the 20 years since I, I mean, it's 22 years since that experience happened. But um, as a woman, it was incredibly empowering. I get the sense that maybe part of that year with the family was maybe inspired by you sort of wanting to give that gift to your children of like mm -hmm. giving them a similar experience to maybe show themselves this strength that maybe they could find that maybe they didn't know they were looking for either. Yeah, definitely. And I just wanted them to love, I wanted them to know nature in that way and to love it because you know, I speak about that in the TED Talk, but being a parent in this era is challenging in many ways. It's always challenging to be a parent. I'm sure it is in any era, but the specific challenges 
of this era is the reality of the vulnerability around climate change and the earth and how it's affecting our life systems and life on this planet. And, um, you know, um, it's like they're already mourning the loss of the earth, even though it's like the earth is going to be fine. It's just how much of life is going to be able to be sustained as we're moving into this era of um, system upheaval and not really having the action yet in, 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 in a unified human way to sort of curtail that temperature threshold that keeps being talked about the 1.75 degrees Celsius, I believe it is. I wish I would have done the research before I <laughs> fact-checked before we did this conversation, but they're, they're being taught this information. And right now there's like a clock that's like in seven years, we're going to be in this point of no return because of that 1.75, I believe, degree threshold. And it fills them with an anxiety around what earth could do to them. So I wanted them to know Aside from the beautiful places we visited, you know, for a week or two at a time, I wanted them to know what it was like to be immersed in nature and to understand that it's, there's so much beauty out there and it's so vast and it's not gone and it's not going to hurt you. Um, although we have to be mindful and we have to be watchful, you know. They, d they definitely felt vulnerability many times on the trip in the same way that I did when I landed on that rock in 1998. But I would say that they did get overwhelmed by beauty as well. And so mission accomplished in that sense. Um, I can only begin to imagine, yeah, the, the amazing experiences. I mean, you all had, especially your children. What, what do you think, you know, you intentionally took a pause and as a family took that pause what did you find yourself learning when you sort of were done with the pause? What did you find yourself learning from that period of time and from sort of taking time to, to truly just pause life and sort of almost like redirect it? You know, you kind of redirected your priorities to other priorities. That's very true. Um, I think a, a, a great, gift that came from that was reorienting my relationship with time in a way that I hadn't been able to since becoming more of an adult with these responsibilities of, um, you know, taking care of children and generating income and having schedules. And I mean, you know, as we're speaking now, it's interesting in 2020 because yeah, we're all in a different relationship with time right now, I would say. But at that time, you know, everything felt like it was going faster every year for me as far as just never, uh, I mean, I was very excited about the work I was doing and there was um, successes happening in my personal career. But when I look back now at my momentum and how much I would fill my day with, um, it's like you couldn't catch a breath to actually process everything that you were experiencing. And I think that's like the challenge of these times, right? Is like time, uh, our schedules never really have to stop. 
we um, we can work really or experience life at such a pace that's something that our nervous systems have not um, caught up with uh, in the digital era. And so just to reorient my relationship with time was so profound and to um, just not feel like I was running to catch up all the time. Um, it was really uncomfortable those first weeks on the trip. I know people, I mean, when I share about the trip, people are like, that's so awesome. Like you guys got to go on vacation for a year. And I'm like, you know, it was amazing, but I wouldn't call it vacation. It was still life. And um, we just weren't occupying it with the same things that we normally would if we lived in a home and were working all the time. However, it was very uncomfortable those first weeks. I mean, our, the way our nervous system was unwinding, we definitely were like, oh, my God, what did we just do? Um, we just pulled up the stakes on our home. He left his work. I was able to just kind of stop my work, do some minimal stuff, and then pick it up. I knew that would be more possible for me than him. But it was it took about five weeks for our nervous system to calm down and honestly not be kind of freaked out about what we just did. <laughs> and then from there, we got into a rhythm. My husband and I had a pact. We would not talk about the future for three months. Not more than like, what are we doing the next day? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always a little bit of future orientation, but we would not talk about the future for three months. And that was such a gift did not force the future yet. And then by the time the winter came, that second chapter, there was like lived in three chapters this year. Um, the first chapter, we were very much in motion and traveling and visiting national parks. And it was, there were a lot of adventures, but also difficulties that we encountered. And that, that second chapter, we just, lived on the family farm and supported his parents in their move and figured out if we wanted to stay there, if this was the place we were going to relocate to. And that was a very sweet and um, a time I really savor because we actually did stop our movement. Um, it felt useful to support his parents in such a big life change. They'd lived on the farm for over 40 years but also to feel what that felt like to be there um, for an extended period of time. And um, yeah, that's when the dreaming started to happen. I was like, what do we want this to look like on the other side? And we were able to make our choice um, during that time, which felt good because then you're not worried about what's happening after this. And then, yeah, we set out for the final three months. We like actually just went back west and it was a glorious time because then we kind of knew how to do the road thing. We already knew how to live via a camper trailer, which is a, an art in and of itself. And, um, and we also knew what was happening when it was done, which was going to be a return to Madison. We knew it would be one of those two things. We didn't set off on the trip like wide open, like let's look for a whole new spot to live. We we knew that we would finish raising the kids in Wisconsin, but we gave ourselves that time to really figure out where we wanted that setting to be. It's funny that you mentioned that people were like, oh, you went on vacation for a year. And, you know, 
I mean, I have two kids myself and going out west in a camper trailer for any amount of time with two children of any age <laughs> and, and a significant other, that that's there are going to be some great moments, I imagine, and some not great moments. <laughs> and so I imagine it was a definitely not a blissful vacation. You know, you're not sitting on the beach for three months there. No, that could happen if you don't have kids. I mean, I think it could happen depending on who you are uh, and what how you frame things. But, um, you know, when I look back now, I had no idea how much preparation we were actually in for this year. I would yeah, say that we already actually figured out how to live quarantine together. Not that it was the same. We still had choice without the same kind of concern. But we had to really learn how to communicate with each other in a way that we weren't forced to before. And that's really paid off. And also, all we did was go outside and go in grocery stores. And that's kind of our life again. (laughs) But, (laughs) But we're... We're, we're in a different home, which is really, I'm so grateful that we were able to find a good space before all this happened, because that's a privilege, and we're not on top of each other like we used to be, both in our old home and then literally in the camper trailer. But um, yeah, we, uh, we, we really learned some valuable lessons to weather this year together, although it's been difficult. Yeah, I I really admire how you intentionally like sought out the discomfort. Like you said, you know, especially in the beginning of that trip, it was all new and I'm sure you were adjusting, but I mean sort of in the background of that entire the entire intention of you, you know, sort of taking that pause seems like there was a little bit of like I need to bring us and myself into a little bit of discomfort here to maybe find you know, a little bit more clarity. Um, I really admire that. It's, it's something I've really been more aware of myself, the the power of intentionally walking into discomfort. And, and I think there's a big difference between discomfort and like unsafety or, you know, non-safety, like discomfort in a safe way. But um, it sounds like that was a very powerful tool for you, but also one that you intentionally walked into. Do you feel like that was something that you knew there was something waiting for you on the other side after you sort of got uncomfortable for a little bit of time? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think I did learn that lesson about discomfort a while ago that it's not something to be avoided. And also it's where growth happens. I mean, the first time, honestly, that experience I had on Isle Royal, I began as a photo intern, but I, what happened to me is I was like, I just need to stay here. So I need to figure out what job I want here right now and stay. I thought I was just going to spend the rest of my life, quite honestly, on that island. And I became what was called a trail crew laborer. Because I just noticed they got to spend the most time in the backcountry and they seemed to have the most fun. However, it was intense labor. <laughs> I mean, I will never have a job that will match that level of labor. And uh, the amount of physical discomfort I had to go through um, just to be able to handle that job, um, 
taught that lesson. Were you like building and maintaining trails? Yes, which sounds, I don't know, to maybe people who didn't live it or maybe don't walk trails. I think it's, it, was, it was one of my best jobs of my whole life. I know it will always be that. To me, to take a wild piece of whatever and to carve a path is fascinating and it's also a great service. Because if you go to the wilds and you have to really just what's called bushwhack, it's really hard. <laughs> it can be, depending on where you are. So it felt like a really great service to my country in, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, I've helped provide paths for people to experience wilderness in a way that was felt safe and um, also protects more of the wilderness. Uh, but yes, it involved lots of hiking, lots of digging, lots of rock work. Uh, and we would do, we didn't have mules. We don't have that level of funding or they, they don't let those kinds of animals come. So you, you were the mule as well. So you'd get dropped off with a backpack of probably 50 pounds of gear. And then you'd have to put your tools on it um, and wow. set off. And I was part of, I loved this, but it was called the roving crew. And so we would do more like fast maintenance of all the trails. And so you'd traverse every trail three times in the, in the summer. Um, and so my average hiking per day was like eight to 16 miles. And then every other day or every third day, you'd move camp forward, walk back to your tools, work forward, you know, and you'd just be hopscotching all the time. But it was a way that I could see the whole island. And, um, but my gosh, I'd come off of that feeling like a machine. My body was like a machine. And um, it felt great to feel that vital. But those initial seasons were brutal, were brutal. <laughs> <laughs> so, or at least the initial month of every season, because the first thing you have to do is cut all the trees off the trail with a chainsaw and you do it with a backpack and a partner and you just go out there and it's like 40 degrees and you're camping and you're like, oh, it's, it's, it was a lot of discomfort, but uh, there's a lot of rewards and um, it was great. But the other place I learned a lot of, about the value of discomfort is yoga because there's a term called tapas, which basically means to tap or to heat. And any um, yoga practice has this component where you're sort of putting yourself in position of some sort of dedication or austerity, but you're, you're meant to interface with discomfort or friction because it creates this heat that purifies. And so you could think of, I know probably people are listening to me and they're like, oh yeah, hot yoga. That's actually not what I'm talking about, but that is one translation. But, you know, there's practices that um, can involve days of silence. And that can get really uncomfortable. But my God, what a, even a day of silence will teach you on the other side of it is, um, is worth it. 
Oh yeah, I can't even imagine a couple hours of silence. I mean, it would be. I feel like after an hour, that would start to get very uncomfortable. Yeah, I've done ten days. It's incredible. I wow. mean, that was before I had kids. That was way <laughs> before. Like my life in my twenties was working on that island for five months. They shut it down in the winter. Nobody goes out there. And then I was like studying yoga and doing um, intense practices and really like I was very um, taken by that in my twenties. And I'm grateful that I came across people who really knew the, I don't know, I guess you could say the, the true sort of comprehensive system that is yoga, not just postures. Um, And I was voracious, you know, I was in my twenties and I was young. So those, bigger experiences where like like I was going for them you know but yeah during one of those winters when I was studying I was able to do 10 days of silence and that was a life changer you really get to know yourself talk oh yeah 10 days all you're hearing is the voice in your head yeah and then you can kind of parse out where are those thoughts coming from what belief is underneath that? Is that my belief? Was that something that was imposed upon me as I was growing up? Do I want to adopt that anymore? I mean, it's a very, it's like that, that self-inquiry, like the power of self-inquiry is very much within that practice. But back to your original um, point about discomfort, I, yeah, I really learned that it's okay to be uncomfortable. That it's not something to be afraid of. And it always passes. Yeah, I can imagine. That Isle Royal, I, I've heard of it before. If I remember correctly, this is it's a national park, right? It's in Michigan. And this is, you described it, the big island of several, several, several smaller islands around it. But this is, if I recall, like known as a very remote area that there's like a waiting list to like go backpacking or to like get on the island and, and do stuff. Or is... There's not really a waiting list. It's the least visited national park in the whole national park system. Oh, interesting. Uh, Mainly because it's such a... It's very remote, right? It's so remote. You can't just like drive through it, right? Yeah. You know, and you have to be able to take time away unless there are seaplanes. So there, there is a way you could get out there and come back. But because it's really set up for... Well, if you have a boat, you can drive out there and you can have a day-long thing. So there's definitely that culture, like the fisherman culture, and there's some sailing that happens. But most people come and want to backpack, so then that takes time. And um, so because of its remoteness and its inconvenience, um, it's just not well-visited, nor is it well-known. You look at pictures. I remember the first pictures I saw, not like amazing photographs of photographers. But I actually had a neighbor who told me about it, and it just looked like a rock with trees. It just looked so boring. <laughs> so boring. I was like, why would you ever want to go there? This was, I was much younger, but um, but my God, like that, that forest is enchanted. I mean, to, to, to find these pockets, these places that still have such an interwoven ecosystem and unique diversity, which all islands do. Um, you know, it, it really just, yeah, just opened up. And I, 
I kind of like that people think it's just a boring rock with a bunch of trees, if you look <laughs> at it. <laughs> but if you go out there, it can be so much more. It'll, it'll remain your special place there. You can make sure that it doesn't get overrun with people. I'm okay. I think that because of bugs, just because of its inconvenience, I don't know that it could ever get overrun. But I guess to your point, there might be some waiting that you'd have to do in like the height of the season, depending on the camping. Yeah, I think uh, just kind of what you pointed out, my, my understanding was just because of its remoteness and the, the inaccessibility of it, like it isn't just something where tomorrow you could decide to go to Isle Royal. Like you have to kind of really think about how to approach this and how you're going to get there and the resources you'll need while you're there and that kind of thing, which honestly is quite exciting. I mean, what an adventure that could be. Yeah. 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 I've started going back out there and it's so special. You, um, in your... In your TEDx talk, you brought up this quote by Howard Thurman uh, that says, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And I I love that whole quote, but that last line, um, I, well, first of all, I agree with Howard and you, <laughs> the world needs more people who have come alive. Do you, it sounds like Isle Royal, that portion of your life really changed you and really helped you come alive were there moments after that point in your life where you also felt like you came alive again? That's such a good question. Yes. Yes, I'd say that, um, you know, you know, you could take that quote and think, oh, it's just about like chasing passionate experiences um, you know, shirking responsibility or purpose. But what I love about that quote is it's this invitation to, in this life, to really know yourself and to unpack and to prioritize those experiences, those places that make you come alive, which don't necessarily have to become your job or become your whole life, but that if we sort of stay true to that inquiry, because I love that quote, I'm still like unpacking it, you know, years later since, you know, seeing that. And, um, Yes, there's definitely a couple situations that come to mind. Um, becoming a mother was a whole new coming alive. And and one, honestly, that I wasn't sure I wanted. Um, not to say once the actual moment arrived, I was definitely embracing, but I had sure. trepidation. <clears throat> and I actually never wanted kids. And then sometimes they show up. And uh, that was a whole new coming alive, a whole new um, discovery of who I am now. And becoming a parent really provided a certain, ah, oh, man, it's like I, I never felt as connected to humanity as I did until I became a mom, just personally, because I got this whole new window of 
I think, compassion and all of a sudden yeah. feeling like your life isn't yours anymore. And talk about discomfort. There's so many moments of discomfort um, to being a parent, but there's so much growth. So for me, it was a beautiful coming alive in this way of, um, of life becoming more than me for, for real. Um, you know, you, everything, how you make decisions changes, how you live, you know, there's no way I'd still be in Madison, Wisconsin if I wasn't a parent. But, um, that was a really big surprise for me, how much I actually love being a mom. Um, and, and how much I appreciate how much it changed me because it's nothing I would have thought out. I feel like the universe kind of wrestled me in, to the ground. <laughs> so I it has a funny way of doing that. Yeah, I totally, I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, but that was a real coming alive that I still am growing from. And, it's, you know, it's a, you know, it's, different eras. I'm in a different era with like a teenager now and one who's about to in just a couple of years be a teenager. Oh my but, gosh. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I'm still finding out who I am now and how I want to show up in this world and where are my gifts and how can I share them? in a way that's paired with what um, makes me say yes and makes me feel connected to being on this planet. And that feeling of belonging that I spoke about um, when I saw the stars, you know, so I, I continue to, to come alive in new ways. Um, And I love being in my forties, I have to say. I think that this has been, I'm 44, I'm about to be 45, and I, there's such a, there's such an, a level of acceptance now of who I am. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, okay. What a like, great this, feeling. This is me. Like, yeah. Oh, like I can't really get rid of those voices. I, you know, those, those parts of us, like are those shadow sides or like where we go into some sort of place where we're like, oh. For me, it's like, I don't know enough yet. I can't do it yet. I don't know enough. Or the ways that I'll try to hide, you know. And um, and anyway, there's just such a great level of acceptance, and I'm really coming alive around that, of just changing my relationship to those shadow voices and realizing, oh, you're going to be here with me the whole time, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Finally accepting their part of the journey. I think I'm actually inviting you in now. And let's just, oh, that's great. Let's just hang out together. Because if I try to pretend you're not there anymore, it's, it doesn't end well every time. So um, I love that. That's a new breakthrough. Um, that is interesting. But anyway, yeah, I guess I, that the, the biggest thing was, coming alive with parenthood and I'm, I'm coming back to photography in a way that I, I hadn't for many years. And I'm embracing that again as just, um, just trying on that identity as a, as a creative artist. That's awesome. Did you, it just occurred to me when you filmed that TEDx 
Madison talk. I think it was, well, it was released in October 2020. I would imagine you filmed it prior or recently before that. Uh, from what I could tell, you were in an empty auditorium. There was nobody present there due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's kind of interesting that you were on stage giving a talk about the need to pause our lives to an empty room that would have loved to have been there, but couldn't be there because they were forced to pause their lives. That's kind of an interesting <laughs> parallel there. Did you feel anything when you were on stage and sort of like, this is sort of interesting, like the fact that there's nobody here at this moment? Yeah, I felt a lot of things. You know, um, I'm so grateful that that still happened. There's so much that got canceled. Yeah. My yeah. my world, I mean, when when March and April hit, my world just, everything I was doing stopped. You know, the in-person classes I was teaching, the so much of my work is um, retreats. And excursions and all of that just, I watched this calendar that I was so excited about. This was the year that I was finally sort of actualizing all my dreams and they just went. And I had a lot of resentment about that. I actually didn't want to pause. I was like, I already paused in that year. <laughs> You're like, I want to keep going. I'm no. Yeah. And like the studio that I taught at for 15 years closed and um, it really felt like the bottom fell out from underneath. And, and I found myself really experiencing the largest depression that I've had in my life. Um, in May, it really hit and June, I feel so much compassion for people who struggle consistently with depression. I have a whole new, I, I think we all experience depression, but I mean, it was at the level where I couldn't function. Like I couldn't hold a thought enough in my head to follow it through very like basic things, like making my kids food. You know, I would have the thought and three hours later, I'd be like, wow, I haven't fed them. I'm just, crying. Anyway, I'm, I'm front loading with that because it was actually, we were supposed to do that talk in April um, with this amazing team. I had something written that no longer was going to hold because I was like, oh my God, I am talking about the power of pressing pause and the radical sabbatical. And now everybody's forced into one. Yeah. What do I have to say about that? You know, like we're all forced into it. Now we all have to live with the unknown and discomfort. What is, what about that? So I'm so appreciative that in the rescheduling, they didn't cancel again. I was sad that it couldn't be in person because I am somebody who thrives when I'm connecting with people. And I wanted that energy of a room and it was hard for me to also um, show up in that moment because I was still emerging from this very debilitating depression. And so it was really a wild, uh, it was a wild day for me. I, 
in early September, the filming was supposed to be late September. I was feeling better and I had more support because I, I, it was a depression you couldn't hide. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can hide depression, but then there's depression you can't hide. Sure. And that was very vulnerable and hard for me because I'm usually the person that supports. And I'm usually the person that can hold it together and be strong. But I wasn't. And I had to ask for support and to say, I remember telling my husband, I was like, I, I need you to let me be messy for a while and to fall apart. Because I actually need to feel these things. This is, I don't want to wish it away or like, but there's, there's a process going on here and I need to be messy. And he's incredibly supportive. But in early September, I said, I'm, I think I need, I need to get away. Like I'm going to need to leave so that I can actually prepare for this moment because I'm, I am afraid that I'm going to botch this like incredibly. And so, you know, being the very supportive, loving partner that he is, like he didn't bat in an eyelash and he was like, let's figure out how you can get away for a week. And so, um, yeah, I was able to get away and just have a creative time. And also just, I, it was, it was beautiful. I was just able to like really hone in on my rewrite cry whenever I wanted to and not have to stop or make people food or like do anything else, but be in my process, whatever that was. I was also writing an article at a time at the time about mental health. And that just felt very alive for me. So I was like, Oh yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Then I came back from that time and felt ready. Um, Luckily, I took a lot of theater and uh, classes in my youth, and I was on stage a lot in my youth because I really pulled back into that skill set of how you sh learn how to show up no matter what, um, and those skills of memorization. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was really helpful, actually. Um, and so then that day arrived and I felt ready and I felt like I had something to say that was relevant to the moment and then just let it go. I think that's what really caught my, my ear, I guess, is it was so relevant to the moment. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in the early days of December, 2020. I mean, I think I discovered your talk was it maybe only five, six weeks ago. Um, but just as soon as I saw it, I couldn't, st you know, I, I started watching it. it. It sounded interesting. And so I couldn't stop, though, once I started because it just felt there was nothing more relevant at that moment than this idea of, you know, you kind of sharing this story from a couple of years ago of how you hit pause, but how we all, you know, we're going through that right now in, in a different ways for everybody. Do you think that, you know, of course, three years ago, you, you had that amazing trip with the family and now it's a totally different time of pause. Do you see yourself intentionally hitting pause again sometime in the future and, and maybe some other way? Well, you know, part of my work is inviting people to pause. So it is built into how I operate. 
and by inviting people to pause because I teach yoga, but I'm also, I would say, the bulk of my practice and also a lot of my teaching has steered in the direction of meditation and mindfulness in the past four or five years. And so um, that's so much about pausing and reorienting um, depending on, you know, what kind of pause is happening. So, you know, I, I have built in little pauses that I do all the time just to stay like in connection with myself and with, you know, my relationships. Um, and you know, is there a time that I see those, that bigger opportunity for a pause? Um, I find myself, so something that happened that was interesting when we were on that trip is there's a whole world of people out there who actually live a camper trailer lifestyle and they're usually retired. So it was this interesting time where I found myself hanging out with elders more than I'd ever hung out with in my life. And you know, our, our culture I feel like we don't value our elders enough at all. Yeah, I'd agree and even with that. our elders don't even know how to be elders because it's not something we're taught anymore or valued. But what I loved about hanging out with all these older folks for a year is I realized, oh my God, there's a whole other time of my life coming that I haven't thought for a second about because I'm so oh, in, the, in the sea of parenthood like you don't think I had it had not dawned on me <laughs> and this is a bit of a window into my personality as well um that there's going to be this period of time where I actually won't have kids in my home and um so I find myself you know that's about 10 years so I really find myself right now thinking about what I want that to look like and what can I do now to help sort of set myself up for that whole different era where my life becomes my own? I, I plan to still be married. Uh, my husband and I, have, we've shown ourselves to be very compatible through a variety of circumstances and stressors. And I joke with him, like, we're kind of like whales, like we just we're like people that just kind of want to be with each other. <laughs> I don't know, but you never know. All kinds of unknowns can happen. Um, but yeah, you know, I think there's going to be opportunity for some pretty big pauses that I used to take for granted when I was learning all this stuff um, in my 20s, you know, and I could go somewhere for a month and just like be there and explore a place, you know, or whatever. Um, but pauses, I think, are just this great opportunity to reset and to um, shift perspective and to check in with yourself, like, do I want things to keep still looking like this after this pause? Or I, They can be minute and they can be large, but there's always opportunity with, um, giving yourself the time and space to 
to pause from just automatic conditioned expectations, behaviors, schedules. Like that's my biggest fear is just not continuing to grow and be curious and continuing to live that question of what makes me come alive because it changes. I think that part's so key that it it does change. And I, I almost love the idea of like pausing whenever appropriate, but to just sort of take a moment to reevaluate that question of what, you know, what makes me come alive? Am I coming alive? Just checking in with yourself. I love that. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be big and bombastic. Like, I mean, I know we did that big thing. And you can probably tell listening to me, I do thrive on experiences that place me in opportunities for growth. And, you know, I, I do like to thrust myself into the unknown and discomfort. Um, that's interesting to me, actually. But I also have learned how simple and accessible all of this can be by just not... Um, yeah, just not sort of like wasting our life away, um, being distracted or doing things just because we think we should, um, living into others' expectations and approval. Um, you know, I've done all those things. So I just don't want to do that and live that way. And so for me, just having my meditation practice is huge. Um, and also just, yeah, my, right now, one of my favorites is um, just getting outside and taking a walk, stepping away and um, just, just being with the fresh air. Like for me, that just even breathing fresh air, we call them fresh air baths. Go take a fresh air bath. I, I tell that to my kids. Go, like just 10 minutes, fresh air bath. Um, you know, it really does something to my mind and to my whole body. So that's, that's my, like, that's what I love right now is the fresh air baths. That's my pause. Love it. We have a puppy, so I'm getting outside a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm like, the same oh, way with fresh air. Another fresh air bath. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fr- like you said, fresh air. I-, I connect with it so much, too. It just makes all the difference in the world being outside. Amy, thank you so much for chatting today and taking the time and also sharing your story, both here and, and chatting with me, but also thank you for doing that TEDx talk. Um, I, you know, I, I hope it continues to reach people because I really do think it's such an important message. So thank you all around. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so glad you came across it. Thanks for listening to We're Only Human. Before you go, I would love to know what you had for breakfast this morning. Just send me an email, tim at we'reonlyhumanpodcast.com and let me know what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.